What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate ideas surrounding our popular storytelling and how they've been influenced, shaped, and formed through history, philosophy, and mythology. And if you've listened before, you can guess I am very excited to be back with another episode this week. However, you're probably about a tenth as excited as I am this week. I am like officially the most excited I may have ever been to record a Midnight Myth podcast. I'm bursting at the seams. So it's an excitement off. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, Come for me. Come for me. Well, I, I just know I'm excited every week, so it's kind of... It's shocking that you're only excited this week. Oh, I'm always excited, but I'm rarely this excited. Okay, wow. Well, touche. The reason I am super excited is that we've been discussing stories the past few weeks pertaining in particular to medieval England, either stories about medieval England, from medieval England, inspired by medieval England, and a little Renaissance England as well. So we wanted to continue this journey into this realm of storytelling and how it's affected how we look, view, and discuss ideas, in particular ideas around storytelling today. And it became very easy for us to narrow down where we wanted to go next. After having a two-week-long discussion on Robin Hood, we knew that there was another central mythological, historically foundational narrative to British storytelling that has bled its way across the pond to America that we have yet to really dive into in this podcast. And this week, we are proud to present to you our podcast on the discussion around King Arthur, his Knights of the Round Table, the Sword Excalibur, and of course, the Sorcerer Merlin. So this is going to be a great episode. A few disclaimers Um, My sort of journey into King Arthur myth and lore centered around a movie made in 1981 called Excalibur. And I'm going to base a lot of my discussion around that particular film. Now, do you have to have seen this film to enjoy this podcast? No. Should you pause everything you're doing in your life and see the 1981 Excalibur? Yes, because it is the hands down greatest King Arthur narrative in the history of all film, period, undisputed. And if you have another opinion, you're wrong. I love that you you said that about Prince of Thieves last week as well. You were like, there are thousands of iterations of this story and this one is hands down the best and you may not debate me. And that is like so... Not what we preach at the Midnight Myth, but I'm here for it. film. Name me a better... King Arthur narrative Monty Python and, and the Holy Grail. But That's it, better? Not really. No, I, I, I definitely, I tend to agree with you on that. And I, I think I agree with you on Prince of Thieves as well. I just love that you're like, I do not invite debate, even though everything else that we do on the Midnight Myth, you're like, I invite debate, but these two things you will not move on. Well, in, in, a, in establishing a debate, it's important to establish the rules and the things <laughs> that are taken as given while you enter into the debate. So we're going to take it as given that the 1981 film Excalibur by John Borman is the greatest version in film. And if you'd like to debate the greatest version in film, you know what? You're right, Laurel. I welcome that debate. It's just not happening in this particular podcast. Fair enough. I'll take it as a given as well. 
Uh, and we'll, we'll lay out some of the reasons that we believe that during this podcast. Um, but in all seriousness and in all just aside, King Arthur is a character that represents everything the Midnight Myth is about. It is a character that intertwines both mythology and history. It's a character that has existed in popular culture throughout centuries for a variety of different reasons and is the next evolution of discussing popular storytelling that has roots in medieval England. I, I do believe King Arthur is like the foundational myth to which we can see a lot of different branches coming out and that this has happened for a very long time. And I think it's worthy of examination. Absolutely. We have a millennia and a half of literature, uh, art, and uh, cinema and television to mine for this. It's a story that has been adapted thousands of times. And I'm not exaggerating here. Thousands of adaptations of this story. And unlike the figure that we just reviewed for the last two weeks, Robin Hood, uh, this is a character who is locative, who is definitely someone who embodies uh, the British Isles and is a British king. And yet his story has stung the hearts of people across the world. There is an Arthur of the French tradition that's almost as important or more important than the British tradition. There is Arthur uh, in Italy. There's Arthur in Scandinavia, in Spain, in Wales, all over the world. People have picked up this story and given their own treatments to it. And so he has reached all of us in a way that most locative heroes really don't. Yeah, so this podcast is going to happen in a few different structures and a few different ways. I think we're going to have a brief discussion on the literary history of Arthur, how it got to the legend that we have today. We're also going to have a, a quick discussion around the historical time where Arthur was rumored or uh, believed to have lived and how that particular time was the perfect breeding ground for a narrative such as Arthur to be focused on. Absolutely. And then I think we're going to dive into some reflections on the 1981 movie as a sort of culmination of both the literary and historic traditions and see what lessons that movie can teach us about King Arthur and thus that we can take away after this podcast into living our, our lives and trying to be as most like King Arthur as we can be. Amazing. So shall we jump in? Well, before we begin, Laurel, if people want to dialogue with us, because we all know the conversation doesn't stop or start on the podcast, how can they reach us? So I would hit us up on social media, first and foremost on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's a contact form if you want to reach us directly. And there's a lot of extra content there, including some blog posts that we've been updating over the last couple of weeks. So definitely hit up the website. And if you haven't yet, make sure you're hitting subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app, such as Apple Podcasts or now Spotify. Finally, we're on the Spotify's. So make sure you head over, hit subscribe, leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast because it really helps us reach more people. Great. So I know you have done a ton of research into the foundational a literature of King Arthur. So for the discussion around that, would you be cool sort of taking the lead? I absolutely would. I want to set the scene here by giving us a brief history of the legend of King Arthur, because it's going to lead us into the conditions that set up the movie Excalibur and set up its particular source material. Um, and as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, nothing that we do here is scripted. Obviously it's all very spontaneous, but I'm going to be honest with you. I lightly scripted this so that I don't accidentally give a dissertation without taking a single breath and turn blue and pass out. So please forgive me. Some of this is going to feel a little bit like I'm reading it from a text, but that's just to keep it from taking over the entire episode. So to begin, we're going back to the fifth century sub-Roman Britain, where Arthur emerges as a figure who is a war leader who leads the defense of Britain against a Saxon invasion. This is the base legend on which all of the Arthurian legends are built. There are no trappings of sorcerers. There's no magic. There's no round table. There are no knights. These are the Dark Ages. 
Uh, later on, we will get chronicles such as the 9th century Historia Britannum by the Welsh cleric Nennius and the 10th century Annales Cambriae, which is another Welsh manuscript, which account for his battle exploits and his death on the field with Mordred, but he's conspicuously missing from other significant historical chronicles. So this conflict, as well as the fact that most of the more compelling evidence toward the uh, existence of an Arthur-like figure doesn't emerge until a couple centuries later that contributes to the heated scholarly debate about Arthur's historicity, whether he's real or not. So we have some scholars today who will argue that Arthur's origins are purely folkloric um, or that he's perhaps like a half-forgotten Celtic deity who's been absorbed by uh, you know, a, a folkloric tradition. Others will insist that he's based upon a real figure, someone like the Romano-British war leader Ambrosius Aurelianus, who's a strong contender for the historical Arthur, or they'll say he's an amalgamation of this figure and others, or some other combination of everything that was just put forth. Now, early Arthurian stories are going to be collected in the Welsh Mabinogion in the 12th century, and that will introduce many of Arthur's men, but still presents his court as tribal, as this Celtic tribal fellowship rather than the knightly court of chivalry that you're probably familiar with. These stories were definitely compiled from an earlier oral tradition in Celtic. Now, Arthur really bursts onto the international scene when he's included in Geoffrey of Monmouth's Latin translation of an unnamed British source, the Historia Regum Britanniae. And that's the history of the kings of Britain in English. This text is what introduces some of the key elements of the legend, such as Merlin, Arthur's magical conception uh, on the Lady Agrain, Guinevere, Mordred, the idea of courtly love is planted in this manuscript, and Arthur's death with possible rebirth on the Isle of Avalon in the time of his country's greatest need. Now, Monmouth's work influences a bunch of derivative works in a couple of different languages, like Anglo-Norman, um, or the first treatment in English by Leamon. Then in the 12th century at the end, we talked about Chrétien de Troyes at length on this podcast. We talked about him on our Jorah Mormont episode especially. He's the French poet and troubadour who essentially invents the Arthurian romance and the medieval romance genre that starts to absorb the Arthurian legend. So he expands courtly love. We have this idea of knights going questing in the forest. He also introduces Percival and the Grail. And most importantly, he introduces Lancelot. So the French treatment of the story becomes arguably the most important for introducing the like key elements of Arthurian legend. Can I interject with a quick question? Yeah, Would you permit please. me? Um, so I think it'd be beneficial because I think I know what you mean when you say courtly love, Yeah. but could you define that for me as it pertains to the Arthurian legend only because I, I know, I pretty certainly know where you're going. I know we've talked about it, but I think it would be helpful for me to hear what you mean by courtly love. Absolutely. The major tenets of the idea of courtly love is that knights do their knightly deeds for the love of beautiful ladies. And uh, Monmouth actually introduces the idea with a single line in that Historia Regum Britanniae, where he says, uh, it's, it's for the love of women that knights do this, and no woman would even entertain the idea of marrying a man or a knight until he had proven himself three times in combat. Thus, the men were made more valiant and the ladies more chaste. So that's the idea, is it's this sort of game of... Uh, going out and proving yourself for the love of extremely pure and chaste women. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like Loris and Game of Thrones giving his favors to Sansa before he goes to a tournament. As one example of courtly love, he has to win a whole bunch more before he can actually go out and get the babe. Absolutely. And the idea that Lancelot, Arthur's greatest knight, would be deeply in love with Guinevere sort of go hand in hand. And you can portray that love in an almost positive light because Guinevere is so pure, Guinevere is so chaste, Guinevere is such a high and uh, you know admirable lady that Lancelot has to prove himself over and over and over again and become the greatest knight to be worthy of her love. 
Sure, let's pin that and come back to that later. Absolutely. So notably, Chrétien's work is going to bear similarities to the three Welsh romances that I mentioned earlier in the Mabinogion. Uh, so it's unclear which of those influenced each other, or if both sets of romances originate from an earlier Celtic work, which a lot of scholars today think is the case. So notably, we've got two different uh, treatments on the European continent in different languages from different cultures that are erupting from the same lost source. Now, in the 13th century, we're getting towards the end of my brief explanation here, a series of prose works written in French by different authors are combined to form the Vulgate cycle. This is also known as the Lancelot Grail cycle. It's the first coherent version of the Arthurian legend, and pretty much all of the hallmarks of the legend are now in place. But it's very far from unified, which is where Sir Thomas Mallory's Morte d'Arthur comes into play. This is not going to show up until the 15th century, right in the heart of the War of the Roses, where a minor nobleman named Sir Thomas Mallory is going to undertake the momentous task of putting together everything, a comprehensive volume by a single author of everything that exists in the Arthurian legend. And it'll emerge as the quote-unquote definitive work that all modern interpretations are going to use as a base for what they uh, adapt from. And you said 15th century, right? Yeah, okay. it's, around, it's around 1470 that he writes this and 1485 that it's published. And he's writing this while he is in prison after being implicated in a Lancastrian plot during the War of the Roses between the houses of York and Lancaster. And he's also been uh, brought to task on charges of attempted murder, rape, and theft. So not a good guy. He is in a life of crime. It is a, 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 a time devoid of morals, in his opinion. And he sits down to write this monumental book of King Arthur, the great, great king who unified all of the, the world that he could see and enacted this code of chivalry and made his men so good and so pure. And he writes this sort of allegorically, but to test the idea that we could have a better world because look, Arthur did it. And when we look at Arthurian literature, there is before Mallory, and there is after Mallory, and we are now after Mallory, and all work uh, engaging with the Arthurian legend, for the most part, is going to be engaging directly with the version that he put forth in the 1470s. Great. Wow. Concise. So, thank you yeah, for listening can, to that. Can, yeah, concise, but also incredibly thorough and very, and very important. quick. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the thing that I take away the most is that we're looking at a very long, very evolved literary tradition that got us to the basic structure of Arthur pulling the sword from the stone, hanging out with Merlin, with Lancelot sleeping with his wife and with Morgana and her son Mordred trying to usurp everything from Arthur, that it, it was a long and slow process that got us there. And we're still living within that shadow of that that work that occurred during, you call it the War of the Roses. Yeah. Which, if anyone out there is counting, the War of the Roses, which inspired apparently this man to write the Arthurian legend, is also the historical period that George R. R. Martin was inspired for A Song, Advice, and Fire. Absolutely. Because it all comes full circle. That's the midnight myth. It all comes full circle on the midnight myth. And another thing that's important to point out is that most of these medieval writers who are treating the Arthurian legend are writing the stories anachronistically. So most of them are not writing about a sub-Roman Celtic warlord uh, who's wearing leather armor and just battling on a hill. They're writing about... Uh, knights in shining armor uh, who live in stone castles and have 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century technology. And the image that we have of the Arthurian legend today is what's presented in Excalibur, is what's given to us by Mallory, is a 15th century uh, look and style. Uh, so they're appropriating this story to match up with the time that these were written and the um, 
sort of political machinations of the day. To put it into other words, they weren't writing about Arthur. They were writing about themselves. Exactly. Which brings up a point I'd like to segue into, Mm -hmm. which is the idea, you've mentioned the historistry, the historical veracity, the truthfulness. Was there an Arthur? Is it based on something? And in preparation for this discussion about the history, I came upon a, a particular historical work by a Manchester University historian by N.J. Higgum. And N.J. Higgum, in a book, Myth-Making in History, he's arguing that, that the way in which we engage with history is a dialogue between the past and the present, in which the present is trying to shape its control over the past for their own benefit. Yeah. In that defining who Arthur is generationally, as each generation has done, has said more about the generation defining it than about Arthur himself. And in this respect, trying to figure out whether Arthur lived or did not live is somewhat absurd when the real point of interest for a historian is what these people said about Arthur tells us so much more about that period than it ever will about Arthur. And I'd like to read a quote of this, historians, if you would permit me. The idea of Arthur has been one of the most persistent and powerful in Western culture over the last millennium, at least, and shows little sign now of abating. It has had successful transformations, each refashioned to conform to the world picture projected by a particular author writing for a particular elite at a particular time. Yeah. Each Arthurian manifestation therefore reflects the way in which a particular Arthur and his or her audience thought to fashion their own conceptions of the past so as to benefit their own positioning in the present. It is in this process of interaction between various presents and their pasts that author Arthur pardon me, has been conceived and utilized ever since the ninth century. And this man is arguing here that what the the real examination should be is why are we interacting with Arthur in the way we're doing it? And why is it in particular in England that to establish a certain element of Britishness, the powerful have had to have a dialogue with Arthur. So there is some parallels to this in history. For example, in the Roman Empire, in order to be successful, in order to claim the throne, you had to take the name of Caesar and you had to interact with Caesar and you had to be in some part and way a Caesarian. Hence, your connection to power was illegitimate. This echoed through time to the point where Russian monarchs called themselves Tsars, which is Caesar, to um, they called themselves uh, in Germany, Kaiser, which means Caesar. And in Arthur, we're seeing the formation of British kingliness as inherently Arthurian. That to be in power in England or in Britain is to say that you are exemplifying some way and some facet, some form of Arthur, which a little thing called the Enlightenment upended the idea and said that power was based upon the consent of the governed. But prior to that idea, if you wanted to maintain control over this island, you had to connect yourself to Arthur so each generation had to define Arthur in a way that they could connect to it so they could have legitimacy to power. There's a, a Latin term for that. It's called translatio imperii, uh, which essentially says that the transfer of power uh, over mankind's history has been constant, has been consistent as ordained by a higher power um, and has consistently moved from east to west, starting you know, in eastern lands and then moving through the Roman Empire and then landing with Arthur and those who descend from him. Um, and there's a lot of truth to, to what that quote that you just shared. If we look at some of the landmark texts that I just laid out, Geoffrey of Monmouth is writing uh, in like 1136, he finishes this. So we're still... Uh, not even a century away from the Norman conquests. We're writing in the uh, you know, heated battle for the soul of Britain after having a, a essentially French king come and take the throne. And then Mallory is writing as Yorks and Lancasters are fighting for who's going to sit on the throne of England. So 
We absolutely have Arthur as this figure of unity, as this figure of sort of imperial destiny, as a figure of greatness and justice who is used as allegory for the historical times that he's written for. What I think is interesting about how we're going to examine Excalibur, this 1981 movie, is that it strikes me as one of, one of maybe not the only, but one of the only Arthurian texts, quote unquote, that is timeless. Uh, Britain is never mentioned, England is never mentioned, the land is never given a name, uh, and it attains this anachronistic and yet dreamlike quality that works on a more subconscious level than a conscious one. Um, the movie I, does. Yeah, okay. I, and I think we'll we'll pick apart some of that as we move through it, but it's one of the first um, adaptations of Arthur where it doesn't feel like we're speaking to where we are politically as a time. It's trying to speak to past, present, and future. So now that we're transitioning into the movie, the very first thing that we see in the movie is a black screen with the words, The Dark Ages. So I think it might be worth our time to understand what it means by that term. It's debatable whether or not there was a quote-unquote dark age and what it means for an age to truly be dark. But we can understand that in the early 5th century, Rome had two halves, an Eastern and a Western Roman Empire. In the West are the territories we know as like Italy, Germany, France, Spain, and what we now call the United Kingdom. Well, Rome had been in major decline and its borders had been shrinking. And if you know any geography, Britain is sitting at the edge of those borders. So Rome had already sort of militarily retreated from the islands of Britain and the province they would have called Britannium well before the last barbarian king in the 5th century disposed the Roman Empire and, uh, in effect, ended the Roman Empire in the West. This meant that before the quote-unquote Dark Age, there was already one emerging. So a Dark Age is usually characterized as a lack of urbanization, a lack of labor specialization, a decline in literature and literacy, and uh, a period that ultimately has less sources. We call it dark because contemporary historians have trouble getting a picture as to yeah. what actually happened. Yeah, we can't see it. It's dark to us, hence it is a dark age. Now, um, what we see in Britain is probably the worst case scenario. Not probably, definitely the worst yeah, case scenario. Because as Rome fell in the West, you had Visigoths and Othogothic empires propping up in Spain and Italy. You had the Merovingians and then the Carolingians propping up in what was called now modern day um, France. France, and then forming the Carolingian Empire, which stretches into Germany and Austria. You had some semblance of civilization carrying on, a lot carrying on traditions of Rome. They're attempting to speak Latin, for example, which Latin evolved into what we now call modern day Spanish and French. In England, none of this happened. The Germanic language at the time becomes the dominant language. Latin virtually disappears. And because it's sitting geographically so far away from the rest of the European continent, no one's really paying attention to it. And there is nobody leading it. There's a power vacuum. In this immense power vacuum, you have smaller tribes all vying for supremacy and fighting each other. But we really truly know very little about this period. So one of the debates about whether Arthur was real is that there was apparently of the tribe of Britons who were the last remaining Romans that were in there, fought off a tribe called the Anglo-Saxons and won a major battle. Right. And that was apparently maybe the Arthur that based the legend off of. But who really knows? Out of this Dark Ages, as it started becoming what we now call the High Middle Ages or the Middle Medieval Ages. No one calls it that because Middle Medieval Ages <laughs> sounds a silly. But it's now called the High Middle Ages. So in the middle of the middle period, we have the High Middle Ages. Um, this sort of power vacuum left Britain very susceptible to Viking raids. Right. It eventually got conquered by the Danish. 
And there was a Danish um, king named Newt, or sometimes called Snoot, also called himself Newt the Great. The Great. And he conquered uh, medieval England. And this ultimately led to the Norman conquest and the formation of a united kingdom. This dark period of Britain's history, this, this age of lawlessness, is ripe for the taking for a myth to, to shape what happened there. Because nobody knows, because it was so dark, because that even to date, it's highly mysterious what happened, and everything that historians know is only, they only know it up till the current evidence, until there's new archaeological or textual evidence yeah. that can then revamp everything we thought we understood we knew about that period. Because of that, out of that complete and total shadowy period of our history comes Arthur, the beacon of light. In other words, if we think of another parallel in Roman history, no one really knew the origin, origins of Rome. And out of that murky darkness comes Romulus and Remus. Arthur becomes the basis by which we can say this was a land once that had a king who unified all of it and gave us a golden age. Now, Britain was unified under Rome, so some have theorized that golden age was Britain under Rome that they're referencing to. So some have theorized that Arthur was a Roman. After all, he was a Briton. But at the end of the day, because there is a big gap of historical knowledge, the way that that, that gap is filled, the bridge between the darkness to the civilization, enter in the myth of Arthur. Absolutely. You've got fertile ground for this kind of figure, this kind of character to emerge, who can bring everyone together, like you said, uh, set the conditions for a golden age coming out of a dark one, and perpetuate this uh, deeply mythic and deeply steeped within a cycle of birth and rebirth and uh, death and decay and this cyclical narrative that we have of history where we'll emerge from the darkness into light, it will inevitably fall, and yet we will hope for the future. And that very much, I think, uh, pinpoints some of the central themes of John Borman's Excalibur that he's extrapolating from Mallory. He's extrapolating from Monmouth. He's extrapolating from the, you know, 1500 years of tradition surrounding this figure because this Arthur figure is a promise. He is a promise that there was a golden age in the past and that there will be a golden age in the future. It's why he's known as the once and future king. Well said. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little more about the specifics of the movie. Yeah. Um, so let's dive into the 1981 movie. For one, I'd like to say it's remarkable this movie even exists it is the complete antithesis of the Hollywood fantasy blockbuster as we know it in the post-Peter Jackson, post-Marvel MCU world that we, we have today. Going back and looking at some of the reviews of the movie, it's funny how many of the people at that time in 1981 said, well, it's kind of as ambitious as Star Wars, but man, it zapped all the fun out of it. <laughs> it's one of the most common criti criticisms of it's as ambitious and high quality of Star Wars, but minus the fun. And I think understanding this movie, you can't really evaluate it as the typical Hollywood movie. No. Because it really doesn't have things like character or character development through the traditional lens of a Hollywood story. It doesn't have a point of view character who we see the most of, if not all, the movie from. In fact, it has dozens of characters who exist more archetypally than they do as well-fleshed-out selves interacting in the world. I think this movie exists because it takes the mythic tradition and then ups it to 15 and then records it on film. Absolutely. I think it, it has come closer um, than almost any film for me to actualizing what myth looks like, what myth would be on celluloid. And... Uh, the director, John Borman, actually remarked to a journalist while he was producing this, quote, the film has to do with mythical truth, not historical truth, end quote. So 
even the director is acknowledging that he is dealing heavily in symbol, he's dealing heavily in allegory and an archetype, rather than producing something that is strictly realistic, rather than producing something that is uh, timely to the Arthurian narrative or necessarily timely to 1981. Uh, he's talking about you know, characters who speak in symbols, who speak in myth and riddle, and everything that is uttered throughout this movie corresponds to something hopefully universal. Oh, yeah. So I understand this movie in three main phases. Pre-Arthur to Arthur's birth, then the rise of Arthur and the formation of Camelot and Camelot's Golden Age, and then the quest for the Grail and the fall of Camelot and Arthur. Absolutely. So I feel like it has a very tight three-act structure to it, all corresponding to different time periods, mostly relating to Arthur. So it opens us with Uther Pendragon, Arthur's father, forging a, a, a nation out of war. He's the greatest warrior. And by virtue of that, he gets the sword Excalibur. Turns out he's got to rape a duke's wife who gives birth to Arthur and leads to his death. And then we see Arthur, it flashes forward to Arthur as a young squire, Arthur is then, you know, loses hit the knight he's squiring for, which is his older brother Kay's sword. He sees the sword and the stone, which he draws. He becomes the king. Then he's got to fight for his kingdom. Then he's got to form his kingdom. And then he has his kingdom. And then Lancelot falls in love with Guinevere. And everything comes crashing down. And everything goes to hell. Arthur sleeps with his half-sister under a magic spell, gives birth to Mordred. Arthur gets struck by a bolt of lightning in the middle of a prayer <laughs> yeah, and uh, is very ill, needs the Holy Grail to revive himself. Percival finds it. He and Mordred kill each other on the battlefield and scene. And he's carried off to the Isle of Avalon for his wounds to be healed. And he will one day uh, presumably return in his nation's hour of need. It absolutely condenses uh, all of the major episodes of the Arthurian legend into the perfect three-act structure, like you just said, that uh, epitomizes this cycle of uh, birth, growth, death, and rebirth. And uh, to do so, it has to combine some characters, it has to combine some relics, it has to borrow from other interpretations of the Arthurian legend. Um, it actually turns Arthur into uh, the figure of the Fisher King, who is uh, central to... Percival's narrative in Cretien, uh, and it t speaks to another major theme that's harped upon a lot in this movie, which is the connection of the king to the land, and through this movie Excalibur, the connection of the sword of power to the king to the land, uh, the unification of those things. Uh, you look like you're going to say something, is it? You will be the land, and the land will be you. <laughs> That's it. Podcast over. <laughs> you totally just took what I was going to say. I could just see the Merlin about to cross your lips. You, can you say will it. be the land and the land will be you if you shall. Blah, 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 blah. You're amazing <laughs> at that impression. It's incredible. Thank you. But uh, Arthur takes on the archetypical Fisher King, who is the uh, wounded king who, because of his wounds, uh, his land begins to perish and becomes barren and there is famine around him. And only once he's healed, will his land uh, blossom again? Will his people be able to eat again? Um, so that connection between the king and the land is absolutely emphasized over and over and over again in this movie. And we can see the um, sort of contrast between Uther as the first king figure that we witness, who is all about battle, who is all about rashness, who is all about succumbing to like the, the blood rushing in his veins and being king for being powerful's sake versus Arthur, who is squired by you know a humble knight who is brought up under the tutelage of Merlin, who makes mistakes all the time and has moments where he will act in pride and deal with the consequences for it, but is always the first one to recognize that he has done wrong. And by doing so, he begins to heal the, you know, the moral and the uh, literal famines of his land to give way to a golden age, to give way to 
you know, a fellowship of people who can create a greater, more noble, chivalrous society. So I read the, the, there's two levels that we can read this connection. The idea that the king and the land are mystically linked is one as a literal mystical link. And this movie reaffirms that when Arthur is healthy and happy, the land is healthy and happy. When Arthur is sick and decrepit, the land is sick and decrepit. So on a certain extent, it's establishing a basis of medieval power that says the king is ordained by God, and when the king is successful, so will the land. So you better have the right king, and you better follow and protect the right king. When you have the rising of an evil king, such as Mordred, the land itself suffers. There's other the other way to read that, especially post-Enlightenment, post-modernist, is that this connection is symbolic. The idea that in order for there to be a civilization out of the Dark Age, there has to be order. In order for order to happen, you have to have strong, powerful, but wise, kind, and empathic justice. The justice that King Arthur provides so that there isn't uh, too much consumption of one thing, so that there isn't an imbalance or an unjust decision hurting some other part of society. So part of it is the symbol of when you have the right ruler making the right decisions that are the decisions that are for the good of all, you will see and feel more prosperity, less hunger, more um, learning. So I'd like to draw attention to uh, the point where Arthur wins all the wars. And this is a scene that's at night. They have bonfires flaring. It's dark. And they're all, all the knights are just like really getting into it. They're the manifestations of their warlike ids gone awry, drunk in the celebration of the moment of having crushed all their enemies. And Merlin to me lights his staff with fire magically coming from it. And a ring is formed And Merlin tells them, remember this moment and rejoice, for it is the doom of man that they should forget. So we see the formation, the first circle. Yeah. So clue in that there is a circle is a representation of both infinity, both the cycle of life, birth, and death, and the representation of egalitarianism. It's also the symbol of the planet as the circle. And in the center, you have Merlin, telling them it is the doom of man that they forget. In other words, pay attention to your history. Understand that this moment is just but one, like you said earlier about the past, present, and future, that will both reverberate through the past and into the future. And out of that discussion, we see Arthur's decision to do things. He says, let's let's first build a table, yeah. and then we'll build a hall, and then a castle, and then I'll marry then I'll have an heir. He is talking about the basic tenets of forming a medieval society by which there is a castle with a lord in which there is an heir to which there will be good governance that will pass down. They'll have a council where people are equals to discuss different ideas, to understand how to more virtuously lead. And we see the transition right there out of the dark age into civilization, right? Yeah, Very next, then we flash forward to Arthur's wedding, and then we see Lancelot and Guinevere. And I do think this tale plays a lot with Freud. I really think there's a lot of psychosexual happening underneath the surface. Because Lancelot is sworn to the quest, he has sworn off women, which is not the way our id wants us to behave. And then he's got to escort this super awesome, super attractive new queen that he professes that he will love. And in now civilization, the new battle is the battle over our impulses, over controlling our id. The central conflict post these wars is whether or not Guinevere and Lancelot are in fact having an affair or are not having an affair. The conflict then is between whether Arthur defends Guinevere or defends the law. In other words, does he defend his id or his superego? And he chooses to defend his superego to defend the law. And this is the, the, the point where we see sexuality and repressed sexuality 
bubbling up to create the new evil. In other words, once we conquer the, the base level material, once everyone has enough food and shelter, new struggles come about, which is the struggle of the self and how does the self sustain within society? The struggle of how do you control your impulses when you have animalistic subconscious urges that tell you to do things like have sex with your half-brother or have sex with your best friend and your king's wife. And these things are the, the sort of warts on this perfect civilization, which Merlin also warns that evil is always where you never expect it. None of them, meaning the king, King Arthur or his knights, are expecting the evil to come from within. They're expecting it to be an enemy. Well, what is Mordred, if not an enemy from within Arthur? Absolutely. Uh, an actualization of the, the repressed feelings or of the um, things that you would like to ignore about yourself and your true nature. Um, I, I Sorry, love... I just gave you a lot. No, that was amazing. So it, exactly at the midpoint of this movie... Uh, they've won all the wars, they're sitting at the round table, and Arthur asks, have we defeated evil? He's created what I like to call a Pax Arthuriana, honestly. Like, Camelot is this... The Arthurian piece? Yeah. Camelot has become this cultural hub for uh, progressive thinking. You see a lot of technological advancements, you see art, you see people enjoying themselves and learning from one another and moving up socially on the ladder. Um, you see uh, the knights of the round table enjoying each other's company. And this is all in the moments before it's going to come crashing down, before the uh, you know betrayal of Lancelot and Guinevere is going to start to build cracks into the stones of Camelot in that Pox Arthuriana. Um, the idea of what do we do now, I think is baked very deeply into Arthurian legend in a um, motif that is called a jeu parti from the French. Uh, essentially, it means like a friendly debate worked out through poetry and one that is constantly returned to by the Arthurian legend. And I think in this movie as well is what is the right way to be a knight? Uh, is a knight's destiny just to go questing and to continue trying to earn the love of ladies by uh, going after beasts or by defeating enemies? Um, or is the ultimate aim of knighthood to eventually settle down, get married, and have kids, and have the domestic lifestyle uh, that is so antithetical to the idea of being uh, you know, a questing knight? And they start to work this out in Excalibur, asking, like, can knights settle down? Can we stop fighting? And I think that question of whether the enemy comes from without or within is central to that friendly debate that we're working out as a question through this iteration of the Arth Arthurian legend. Uh, there is never an end to, to evil. We have never defeated evil. And so... Uh, we're we're setting ourselves up for failure if, as these great knights, we let our guards down, if you will. We stop looking for the quest because we are ignoring the quest that's within. And to put that a little bit more simply, Arthur will later say of his knights, it's not easy for them without the hard teaching of war and quest. So he's outright saying that fighting wars is easy. It's the easier battle to fight. And so once those uh, you know, external uh, obstacles have been taken away, we face the much harder battle of trying to make ourselves better, of trying to work on the sort of painful things that we would like to ignore within. It is a question we still grapple with today, with when warriors return from battle in the time of peace, what is their purpose now? What can they serve? How can they serve? It's something that we debate in America through the question of how do we protect and how do we help integrate veterans back from war? Are they receiving the proper care that they deserve or are they not? Wow, yeah. And it is a, a time-honored, not time-honored, not the right word. It is, a, it is a problem that many societies at peace have had to face when they've had people that fought to get to that peace now living in it are stagnant. 
It's one of the reasons chivalry as a code exists to begin with, to harken back to our Jorah Mormont podcast, was that medieval knights were raping and killing at will, and there needed to be a code to rein that in, because when they weren't killing their enemies, they just started taking their their neighbor's women and their neighbor's gold. Absolutely. And we see also these struggles in another broader context, even outside of what does it mean to be a veteran in a time of peace? What does it mean to be a person at peace? And what are the struggles that come out of civilization once it evolves from just simply defending your, you know, your crops from your neighbor to now having a complex, you know, multinational, or at least in Arthurian, a complex multinational kingdom with all these different tribes now at peace. What does that peace mean? And what are the new struggles that come out of it? And those struggles become much more personal. They become, as Guinevere says it, in the idleness of peace, gossip spreads its own evil. Absolutely. So these are the struggles that we see Camelot face. Once it's defeated all of its enemies, once it has plenty of food and water and medicine, once it has plenty of shelter, there are new struggles, as in once society evolves out of the Dark Ages into civilization, there are a whole new set of of worries that it must come out and it must face. Now, this movie addresses them, I would argue, through the psychosexual, through sexual sexuality, repressed sexuality, and repressed sexual urges that I think can be very much read through um, some psychoanalysis of Sigmund Freud. I think that's where it wrestles in once there is now a civilization, the next thing is, is how do we control these animalistic desires that bubble beneath under the veneer you would say of chivalry are all of these brutish desires that are not being worked through healthily. And then they manifest in things like Guinevere and Lancelot and Morgana and Mordred. And that's why just having a code, just having this oath that we take towards chivalry isn't enough, right? I think this is making uh, something of an argument that uh, law in itself is no match for uh, true internal faith. I'm trying to think of a better word for it, but uh, in order to truly advance, in order to be good, in order to live justly, we have to have some kind of internal uh, compass that leads us in the right direction. And Arthur stands as kind of the best example of that in this movie, even though he falters, because he's able to find forgiveness. He's able to find, uh, you know, a path toward redemption, even for those who uh, betray him. I would say that civilization for civilization's sake will ultimately produce some very repressed bad people. Yeah. You need to couple it with a strong philosophical desire to live the best and good and happiest life that you can live. I would say that baked into Excalibur is the idea that repressing all of these things that make us human, that forged our kingdom, and that now that we have this kingdom, such as violence and rape and all these terrible things, now that we have it, all we can do is repress it instead of reconciling it yeah. is, I would say, that the problem. In other words, you do need a guiding philosophy. Yeah. You can't just have the chivalric code and say, that's it, we've conquered evil. We fixed it Now that, we have a law. Now that we're not at war and all the knights are hanging out feasting, evil's done, right? right. Everything is great, right? And Merlin is there to say, no, everything is not great. It, there is still evil. You can't have one without the other. So I think to me, there is a lesson of a, a try to think of the right term here, a bit of a rebuke to the simplicity of medieval morality Yeah. and an argument for the way that, yeah, there's a cycle and it will repeat. But what I take away most from watching Excalibur at this phase of my life is that, uh, yeah, the dark ages sucked. <laughs> Before we close, I do want to pivot to talk about one more major theme of this movie um, that's expressed best through the character of Merlin. Um, and that's the fact that this character continually comes back to this 
sort of resigned lamentation at this being the end of his time, that the one God is now arriving to to get rid of the many. I forget how he actually says that, but... It's uh, a time for men and their ways. Exactly. There is a, a sense that enchantment and magic and this uh, sense of connection to the land is part of uh, an ancient world order that is being phased out. And we can see that sort of actualized within the uh, transition of pagan tribal uh, societies to Christian societies, which is exemplified by Arthur and his court going after the Holy Grail. And I think it sort of perfectly manifests that cycle of birth, death, and decay that we've been talking about. But to throw a little bit of a boomerang at you, I don't know how much of a boomerang this is going to be, um, it reminds me a lot of Tolkien's views on history and the cycles that uh, he iterates within his Middle Earth sagas. And to get a little bit deeper under why that reminds me so much of Tolkien, I think we have to look at the fact that John Borman, when setting out to make this movie, to make a movie about Merlin the Sorcerer, couldn't get a studio to uh, greenlight his script. And instead, he was offered an adaptation of The Lord of the Rings and worked on a script, built sets, was ready to produce it before he finally got a deal to make Excalibur. So some of the sets that are used in this movie and some of the uh, thematic elements that are actualized within Excalibur are recycled from the adaptation that he was working on for The Lord of the Rings. As we watch Arthur being ferried away to the Isle of Avalon, does that not look like the elves and Frodo sailing into the West as the magic and the enchantments die and man takes over uh, what's left of the world? I just think it's an interesting thing to point out. Cool. Yeah, very interesting. Was there? It sounded like you were going to ask me a question there. Oh, I just wondered if you uh, if you recognized that, if you had any thoughts on uh, those well, connections. I, I had no idea that, uh, you know, Borman was actually working on Lord of the Rings before Excalibur and abandoned that. So that's right? really cool. I would also say that you don't have Tolkien without Arthur. Exactly. That they are very much borrowing from each other. Now, I would also argue that Tolkien is very much borrowing from Norse and Norse history, Yeah, but it's also incredibly British. And so that we see a combination of a lot of King Arthurian moments with Norse myth. And we, we add that together and we throw out some, some hobbits and then boom, we've got some Tolkien. So I think that those two are very borrowed. I think if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings or you're a fan of uh, Tolkien's writing, you're going to love the movie Excalibur. So I do see that thematic and also that sort of uh, magical touch that sort of um, you know ancient Norse, ancient Celtic touch that they both have. Absolutely. And Tolkien himself wrote an epic poem called The Fall of Arthur, uh, and so was definitely working in the same kind of world. And just in the way that I think the Arthurian legend is a sort of Mobius strip that uh, sometimes we can't see who influenced who in the development of the legend. Sometimes we can't tell uh, you know, which story was cannibalized by Arthur or which story uh, influenced Arthur to become who he is. Uh, we have the same kind of thing in the adaptations in the 20th and 21st century. And I think that's pretty amazing. Well, and I think it's also worth noting that Tolkien is trying to recreate what King Arthur was organically. The idea of a pre-civilization that had magic and that had wizards and had, you know, valiant knights and valiant warriors pitted against the darkest of evils are all very reminiscent thematically to what we see of Arthur. And, and uh, they're both about the foundation of a medieval society. Yeah. Of how do you create this medieval society that ultimately gave birth to the society we have? Yeah. And it's important to note that as we discuss medieval Western society, that we are we are talking about the first seeds of our own. Yeah. 
that this is part and parcel of our civilization is understanding medieval society and medieval society in particular, medieval British society, the, uh, you know, the great birthing place of the American society defined itself by its Arthurianness. And because of that, we need to know and we need to reconcile who Arthur was, both if we want to understand our civilization and two, if we want to understand how to tell good narratives that will last for a thousand fucking years. I want to close with a quote by John Borman, the director of Excalibur. He says, quote, that's what my story is about. The coming of Christian man and the disappearance of the old religions, which are represented by Merlin. The forces of superstition and magic are swallowed up into the unconscious, end quote. I think earlier in the podcast I said that this is a movie that works on an unconscious level and speaks to a sort of mythic universality in all of us. And it creates a timeless, out-of-time and out-of-place Arthur that resonates with us like a dream. And I think that this adaptation is special and... uh, is as powerful as it is because the Arthur of this adaptation can't be claimed by one people, can't be claimed by one time, because he can be claimed by all people and all times. And to see him riding into the West is a personal as well as a universal loss and hope for the future. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.